0: This episode is sponsored by Memento. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real-world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Rowan Yudiao. Hey, man.
1: Hey, thanks very much uh, to having me on the podcast. I'm a a big fan of what you're doing here.
0: And I'm a big fan of your upcoming book. Uh, I've uh, bought the license and I've been keeping an eye on the updates and I'm really eagerly waiting for it to come out in the complete form.
1: Yeah, look, uh, it's been going for a while, that's for sure. I guess that's just kind of the, one of the challenges of self-publishing a book uh, these days. But no, it, it has to be finished by reInvent. So uh, I'm definitely pushing for these next few weeks to get it uh, done yeah. and out the door, uh, get that V1 launched. But um, yeah, you know, I can always come back and make some changes afterwards if I have to, which inevitably I will, you know, as you know, working on AWS.
0: Oh yeah, I totally get it. Uh, for my last book with uh, Manning, uh, I, no, I partnered with uh, Peter Sparsky and AJ Neer as well. And between three of us, it took us two years. So <laughs> writing a book is not easy. <laughs> it takes a long time.
1: Yeah, yeah, it makes me feel a little bit like I think I'm coming uh, up onto two years now. Uh, but yeah, I'm ready, ready to be done with it.
0: Okay, so and for listeners who haven't seen your book, uh, maybe can you just uh, tell us a bit about uh, what the book is about? And uh, what's your inspiration for writing this book?
1: Yeah, look, so the the book's called The Practical AWS IAM Guide. And I wrote it because, you know, I'd been working with AWS for nearly a decade. Um, By then, you know, just working on AWS, you know, a lot of serverless, things like that. And uh, I realized that I, I didn't actually know that much about IAM, and it's kind of important. It's, it's kind of a big deal, especially when, you know, writing serverless applications where every function has a role, every role has some level of access. Uh, so it's kind of important to get it right, and I, I thought I knew about it, but I thought there might be some more to learn, and uh, there was a lot more to learn, uh, and that's why it's still going two years on after I announced that I was going to do the book.
0: Yeah, and it's one of those things that I think a lot of people struggle with, uh, whether they are new to AWS and uh, or if they're just going to serverless uh, for the first time, having worked with containers or EC two for a while, where you don't have to think about you know, granting the permissions as much because uh, you got this server running doing lots of different things so it needs a lot of different permissions so you tend to be a bit more sort of relaxed in terms of the permissions you assign but when it comes to really fine-grained individual lambda functions doing just one thing then you gotta be paying special attention to what permissions you assign to each function so that you're following you know the, the golden rule when it comes to security which is a uh, uh, least privilege and i think there's a massive gap in the market in terms of educational Materials on IM. I mean, you said you don't. You, you said you don't feel like you know uh, IEM really well. I mean, I've been using AWS for 15 years, and uh, I'm pretty sure there's still lots of things that I've never done with IM. I mean, the, I've barely had to use the conditions uh, in, the, in in that 15 years, and there's lots of little you know caveats there that uh, uh, I'm still learning every uh, every, uh, every day. So um, I've been look, I'm really looking forward to your book uh, finishing and uh, finally coming out and i guess uh you know with that what are some of the things that you have learned personally whilst in the process of writing this book
1: look you you really summed it up well you know when you're writing a serverless application your code is just so close to the permissions that it really makes a difference if you get it right you know giving a a lambda function way too many permissions which is unfortunately what many people do when they get started uh is something that you can get away with you know in development but When it comes time to to get into production, it can definitely come back to haunt you. Uh, If I had to talk about the things that I've learned, especially writing this book, you know, I started out thinking, hey, I'm pretty good at AWS. You know, I've been doing this for a few years. I've been only doing this for a few years. And wow, I learned a lot. You know, there is a lot going on in IAM that I definitely didn't appreciate. So, you know, hats off to the IAM team. Uh, You know, it's kind of amazing, um, you know, especially being involved in one of the 10 year anniversary blog posts, you know, the scale at which they operate, the responsibility which they, they have to handle with, you know, kind of started joking with people when I was writing the book or starting to write like, hey, am is the only service you have to use on AWS. You have to get the access right. You could use containers, you could use EC2, you could use functions doesn't really matter. You still have to use IAM. And, uh, you know, I think your point around that granularity when it comes to serverless is, is definitely true. It's probably one of the selling points, one of the benefits of using serverless. It becomes a lot harder to do when you've got more going on in your compute unit. Um, in terms of the things that I learned, you know, conditions are a great example. You know, they're incredibly powerful, but they are still a little bit unintuitive. You know, and this definitely comes out when you start doing things like attribute-based access control in anger. You know, this is a, a challenge and a, a sticking point um, and definitely uh, was a, a challenging chapter to to write for the book as well. Um, so, yep, conditions is a, is a great example of, you know, something that you can just go really, really deep in. There's the global conditions that, you know, all of IAM supports, all AWS service supports, but then each service have their own specific conditions as well. And so, you know, whether or not those are relevant to you are going to be re- depend upon whether or not you use those services. Obviously, there's a lot of services. So there's a lot of service condition keys.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. So uh, about the uh, uh, RBAC, you mentioned uh, a while back. It's one of those things that's been sort of bubbling for a little while now. AWS is uh, constantly talking about it as the next generation or how do you scale permissions at the enterprise level. But it's still you know, frustrating that uh, even to today, a lot of services doesn't support it, including Lambda. I think uh, when I checked a couple of weeks ago, Lambda is still not supporting attribute-based uh, uh, permissions uh, just yet. Um, I guess uh, you know, like my question here would be, uh, when do you use a uh, uh, ABAC uh, versus r RBAC? And are there some sort of consensus in the community around uh, you know, what is the right thing to do here? Uh, Well, Mm -hmm. actually, maybe can we start by just uh, giving the the listeners a definition for what RBAC is and how does it differ from what we're used to?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely.
0: How how does uh, ABAC compare to RBAC?
1: No worries. We'll explain both. So, look, RBAC stands for Role-Based Access Control. And, you know, this is pretty much the default approach on AWS. And uh, I would say that, you know, you can't go too wrong using RBAC. Uh, and you know, just like we said before, all functions have a role, so guess what? by default, lambda specifically, but even you know e c two has instance profiles, containers have similar things as well. Um, you know the whole idea is that your code will assume a role and it will use the permissions that are assigned to that role. And the nice thing about this model is, you know, it's, it's kind of like putting on hats and that's why the, the AWS icon is a little hat icon for a role. You know, you put on the hat and you do the job, you know, that you need to do. And you can change hats if you want. You don't need to be stuck within one role uh, for, you know, the entirety of your code's life cycle. You can change that up. But what it does mean is that if you put on one hat, you can't have another hat on, you know, kind of explain it to people like, yeah, theoretically you could put two hats on, but that wouldn't look, would look a bit silly. Um, so this is RBAC. So this is what most people are doing, whether they realize it or not, or if you're not sure what you're doing, then this is what you'd be doing. Um, you know, IAM users kind of like RBAC, but you know, that's a, a slightly separate topic. Um, the contrasting approach for that or an alternative approach, and I think I used to think of it very much of a, as a, you know, RBAC versus ABAC or attribute-based access control. And it probably isn't quite so adversarial. It's probably more of a complementary approach. So ABAC or attribute-based access control is where your level of permissions is determined by attributes that are part of, you know, your code's running lifecycle. So, uh, you know, as an example, when you assume a role, you might have a tag set on you that says, hey, I'm part of this team and the permissions that are on your uh, resources, particularly, will say, "Hey, only people that have this team can use these IAM actions on me." You know, so that might be write or update. You know, something a bit more important. Anyone else gets either no permissions or reduced permissions. So this is really powerful. Uh, it's also quite complicated, and it is made somewhat more challenging by the fact that not all services, or even resources within services support this, as you kind of mentioned. Lambda did get some ABAC support a few weeks or months ago now. Um, so it might be worth going back and, and looking at that. Um, but I guess the, the key thing to remember for people who, you know, see that, oh, wow, this service has ABAC support now, I should totally go out and use that. And those are the ones I say, well, are you sure? like. If you can't do what you need to do using role-based access control, then sure, definitely go and look at attribute-based access control. But if everything's working fine using roles, stick to roles, because roles are generally more uh, simple, I would say. Uh, there's a lot less kind of combinations of, of complexities that you, you stumble over using roles, because it's very clear. I have this role, I'm doing this action, Um, versus attribute access control where uh, your level of permission will change even if you maybe haven't done anything because the resource is now looking for a different attribute. Um, And so where attribute access control makes sense is when you've got a really complicated permissions model that you need to implement. Uh, The example I went for in my book is Uh, controlling access to to S3 objects, you know, so you have to use some some service specific keys there. But this one's really good because chances are you've got a lot of objects, you know, you've got a big bucket full of thousands, tens of thousands, millions of objects potentially um, going through and specifying permissions based on individual objects for a specific role just isn't going to work at scale. Yeah, you know, so this is a scenario where, okay, these objects can be you know managed by this kind of principle as we say in IAM. Um, you know that's where it makes sense. And if your permissions model changes, you don't need to change everything everywhere. You just change the things that have actually you know gone through that change. Um, the one of the downsides of role based access control is that you know everything needs to be specified in that role. So you know I need to say, hey, uh, this role has access to these objects. And that just doesn't scale beyond a certain point, but you should only use ABAC if you've actually reached that point. If you haven't reached that point, then don't worry about any of this.
0: Okay. So that's actually a little bit different from the kind of the, the examples that AWS often likes to talk about, which is uh, within an organization, essentially you're replacing, you know, IAM roles for users. You're saying, you know, different teams have got uh, different permissions to different, um, to different services and you're using that to control, uh, who can access uh, which resources based on the, um, the tags on the user. Um, so I guess that what you're saying is that you can actually use ABAC, uh, uh, uh with, RBAC as well uh, as part of your Correct. application as opposed to just for managing user level access
1: mm-hmm. yeah definitely and that was a big change for me you know i think i even wrote a, a, a piece uh, on my blog years ago saying hey we shouldn't be using tags for for access control and you know that is probably worth explaining that a little bit as well you know because tags in aws started out as just a cost management tool and you know for better or worse they they Use those, and I mean it makes sense. You know, tags are definitely a form of attribute. You see this in in many other kind of security and identity and access management systems. And so, you know, unfortunately, because they started out as being kind of an optional cost management thing, um, you know, they aren't always consistently implemented by the services. Uh, you know, we can get into some of the downsides of two pizza teams and things like that. Um, it just means that these are some of the challenges that you have to face into if you are going to do, uh, you know, a back at scale. And and what I realized for me as I was writing this book and especially rereading some of the, the blog posts, you know, I definitely agree. Some of the blog posts do make it sound like, yep, you've got to use attribute-based access control to be, you know, modern or, or you know, doing the right thing. And it, it just, in my opinion, isn't the case. You know, you should use role-based access control until... You can't, and then you should use attribute-based access control because the things that ABAC is good for are the things that RBAC is not good for, and vice versa. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely much more of a a complementary approach with a little bit of an asterisk on there to make sure that, hey, does the service you care about actually support it? And within that service, does the resource you care about actually support it? Because these are things that uh, there's definitely not coverage there today, Uh, but it is improving. You know, the, the service teams continually release this kind of functionality. So you do need to reassess every so often.
0: Okay, yep. So we talked about uh, use cases for ABAC in terms of uh, managing assets for your resources, but also in terms of managing assets for users within, say, an uh, enterprise environment. Uh, but do you also see a use case for ABAC in terms of uh, uh, managing permissions uh, for, say, CI/CD pipelines? Because I think that's another area that a lot of people struggle with. Uh, whereby uh, they've got some strategy in place for managing user level assets in within the organisation uh, and that uh, they've, uh, you know, worked out how to do least privilege for the functions and services. But there's always a question about, okay, what about the CI user? Because uh, oftentimes you still end up with, you know, that being the kind of the the, the gap uh where you see, okay, a lot was using administrators because it's just easier. And uh, there's other things I've seen people try to do, like start with the minimum amount of uh, privilege, and then uh, you just keep failing your CI CD pipeline until you gradually add enough permissions to make it pass, uh, or you go from administrator and then the gradually remove permissions that you don't see from CloudTrail. Of course, the problem with that approach is that uh, at some point, you're going to add a new uh, a new resource in your project, and suddenly your CI/CD pipeline is going to break because you don't have the permissions, because you've not seen that, uh, uh, you've not needed that permission before. And I think the worst case I've seen is uh, when you need to f- uh, roll back for the first time so suddenly, cloud permission gets stuck in this weird state because uh, it's got all the permissions it needs to deploy, but none of the permissions it needs to roll back. So, <laughs> so I guess in that case, uh, have you seen uh you know people using a bag uh, with their uh, deployer roles to try to, I guess, uh, limit what you can deploy in terms of okay, you can deploy anything um, that has got the same tag as your deployer role, but uh, you can't just deploy, uh, I don't know, some uh, each two instances uh, without a team tag
1: yeah yeah look it's a good one and i'd say i probably haven't seen that in the wild although i think uh it's definitely worth exploring i think you're right you know there's definitely a lot of um you know kind of what i would refer to as god boxes or you know these deployment systems that just have star privileges you know because hey it it works uh you know i guess on on some level unfortunately uh least privileges a non-functional requirement. You know, you don't need to do least privilege to get things working, um, which is why probably people don't always go back and, and do what they should, even though the security literature out there, uh, you know, definitely talks about least privilege being the thing you should aim for, and it, and it is. I think, you know, ultimately your CI/CD system, it's an automated user. So theoretically you should be able to lock that down to the privileges that it needs, I think you know the scenario you've described is is definitely a valid one around you know adding new services or or new features that haven't been seen before, and this is where some of those static analysis things you know like you know IAM access analyzer will do that that policy generation for you off CloudTrail. Obviously, you know there are some uh, gotchas when it comes to that coverage because. Not all services log, most do, you know, the vast majority of do, and they've just added a whole bunch of new services to that feat, uh, to that functionality as well. Um, but, you know, the, the gotchas will definitely kind of cause your pipeline to fail. Uh, I think, you know, the scenario you've described where you're using those tag-based controls to do those deployments could work today. Uh, it's just that it's only for that limited subset of services that do support those tags and and those particular conditions. So I think what you find in the real world is you very quickly, you know, get out of that um, supported service area. And that's where you have to fall back to that role-based access control. And, you know, that's where as much as possible, you know, when it comes to your production environment, um, you should be trying to do that analysis or, you know, get those policies down to that, that lower level. But it's not easy. Let's, let's just call it what it is. You know, uh, I think a lot of uh, marketing literature out there for a lot of the security t- services or, you know, uh, offerings uh, make it sound really, really easy. And oh my goodness, you'd be a terrible developer if you didn't do least privilege Uh, But I think the the practical reality is that uh, a lot of people are not doing it. There's a lot of room for improvement. And, you know, I feel like I've seen a lot of uh, startups in this space over the last kind of year or so that are definitely trying to to fix this problem. AWS is trying to fix this problem as well. Um, So, you know, I, I look, I think this is going to improve a lot in the coming months and years. Uh, but we're not there yet. You know, it's still a challenge and it's still something that uh, a lot of teams struggle to do in, in the real world from what I see. Um, but it's it's getting better slowly, a bit slower than I would like, but it is getting better.
0: Yeah. And my, I guess my worry is that until it's 100% there, there's always going to be the incentive to just, like you said, use the God box because everything else is just, you know, covers or 90% of use cases, and then there's always going to be the first time I need to do this one other thing. Now, it takes me out of that, uh, the golden path. Now, suddenly Mm -hmm. I'm back to, okay, I have to spend a lot of effort to try to get this to work or just let's try to use a, you know, administrator role and get it done with.
1: (laughs) That's the problem. Unfortunately, with, you know, the whole term least privilege, until you get to that actual least, it's not least privilege, you know? So it might be, it might be good, but it's not least privilege, you know. By by definition, it's a very, very high bar to try and reach. So, you know, that's where I'd say in in the you know the teams that I've seen out there doing things successfully, it's probably the eighty twenty rule. You know, you you probably um, have to get as as close as you can practically without spending your entire time doing this and just worrying about permissions, because you know the. Part of the reason why we do serverless and why we, you know, move towards this model is that hey, I want to spend more time writing, you know, application business code that, you know code that's going to solve business problems, not just wrangling with my security system again, um, you know. And so that's uh, it's a bit of a balancing point, and uh, I think you can definitely overdo it. Uh, especially in some larger organizations where you have a security team that just says no and, uh, you know, just keeps knocking people back because it's not least privileged. It's not least privilege. Um, I don't think that's practical either. I don't think that's valuable. You know, I think there's a, there's definitely a, uh, a happy middle ground there where, yes, you should spend some time on your security, you know, because it's a, it's a good reason. It limits the blast radius of, you know, things going wrong. And that applies not only to, you know, say malicious actors, but also to your own code. You know, if your own code does something that maybe you didn't intend it to do, um, using your permissions appropriately uh, can definitely protect you from some of those things.
0: Database caching is a powerful tool. It makes your application faster, more durable, and improves your uptime. But it usually involves a lot of manual configurations, which can be painful. Memento's serverless caching is different. You can unlock all the benefits of database caching without any of the operational headaches. It works at any scale, and its pay-per-use pricing model means you don't have to waste money to over-provision for peak traffic. It's easy and free to get started. Visit gomento.co slash real world to try it out. That's c o slash real world. The link is also in the description below. Now back to the podcast. So you touch on some um, third party vendors that can do some of this uh, analysis and automation. Um, so can we maybe you know, give us some ideas uh, in terms of uh, which vendors uh, we should be looking at, uh, any sort of open source tools out there that can do this kind of analysis as well as, uh, you know, first party AWS services that can make this uh, process of working out what is the least privilege you need uh, easier.
1: Yeah, look, so unfortunately I haven't written that chapter in the book. That's the the next and last chapter. I've got a very, very long laundry list of of tools and services that I I need to go through. Look, I think, you know, if you're you're in AWS, you should definitely start with IAM Access Analyzer. Uh, You know, Access Analyzer actually has kind of three main areas of of functionality. And one of them is policy generation based on CloudTrail logs. So um, this is a really good starting point just don't think that it's going to be your, your ending point. Um, although maybe maybe it's good enough um, for, for what you're doing. Although I think what you'll find, you know, as an example, access analyzer might look at your CloudTrail logs and say, hey, look, um, you know, I can see you're using S3. Let's get some S3 access. But unless you've turned on things like the data events, which also produces a lot more information in your CloudTrail logs, you know, it's not going to necessarily know that you need you know, um, get object on this thing and, and update object on the other, on some other object and things like that. So again, it's it's a good starting point. It'll give you a, a view as to, okay, I need to think about S3 for access for my application. Um, but, you know, it's, it's there in your environment now. You can run, um, you know, policy generation based on a period of time, you know, seven days, 30 days, whatever you want. Um, So that's a really good starting point because it's just there and it doesn't cost you anything. You know, it's a a free service from from AWS. There is some limits on concurrency and, and, you know, just how much you can use it, but uh, it is there ready to go. Uh, Once you get beyond that, at that stage, now you have to start looking at other kind of tooling to use. Uh, And there's some really good open source tooling in this space. Uh, There's a couple of different ways you could go with it, you know. So if you're, maybe more on the security side of things and you wanna handle um, generation of policies, there are tools like um, Cloudsplaining, which is a way to generate a policy that's a little bit more um, kind of user-friendly than just writing the the JSON policy document yourself. Um, So that one's uh, something that a lot of teams uh, that are just getting started seem to enjoy to use. Um, probably one of my favorites is I am Live by uh, uh, Ian McKay. It actually sits uh, on your client side and listens to your API calls um, using the uh, client-side monitoring uh, proxy that's actually in the SDKs, um, which is pretty nifty if you if you haven't heard about that one. And so you know it'll see those API calls, it'll record those API calls. Um, <laughs> you know unfortunately there's there's still gotchas to that as well. Um, because, you know, some permissions are not based on, on actual API methods. Um, you know, there are some permission-only actions in IAM. Uh, IAM pass role is a, probably the most common example of that. Um, so, you know, there's still going to be these things that you need to massage that, you know, if it's the first time you're seeing an, an IAM pass role error message, it can be very, very confusing. Uh, once you've seen it a few times, you start to rec- recognize it. Um, and, you know, beyond the open source tooling, and there's, there's a bunch more as well, I feel like, you know, we're just starting to see a, a lot of um, startups coming up in this place now. I haven't had a chance to use many of them, um, you know, the, although I have a few of them that have reached out to me to, to give their, their offerings a go. So um, I'm, I'm hoping to probably do some more blog posts about this in the not too distant future, you know, to kind of help people navigate all these different options um, you know, yeah. usually at that stage, you now then have to start worrying about a lot of other systems as well that, you know, okay, where, what does this impact? You know, are there other clouds involved, things like that. So um, for now, I'm focusing on the AWS tools and the open source tools that are focused on AWS.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan of Ian uh, McKay's uh, stuff. He's, uh, he's writing as well as so the uh, IAM role, so um, IAM live uh, uh, and stuff he's doing as well.
1: Yeah, his um his permissions cloud reference, permissions.cloud reference is a, a fantastic resource. I, I probably have that open in the background all the time. You know, it's a, a way to navigate. I think he has even the other clouds up there now, but you know, in particular the AWS uh, IAM documentation. You know, you can just search for "Hey, I've got this action or this service for this service. What are valid actions? What conditions can I use?" Uh, you know, he makes it really easy to, to navigate these um, the the documentation that you know in in classic AWS style. That the all of the information is there in in the AWS documentation, but finding it is probably the the bigger challenge. Uh, and he has a nice little graph of of all the IAM actions and. A, particularly around this time of year, you know, before reInvent or as reInvent comes, uh, you know, that number is just jumping up every couple of days, uh, you know, with new services, new features, uh, things like that.
0: Yeah, and uh, I think a lot of time you can also guess uh, what features are coming up by the IAM permissions that they release ahead of those uh, feature launch as well, especially around this time
1: yeah yeah actually that reminds me one of my other favorite projects uh is by aiden Steele. it's called track iam It's it's a github repo and so he's constantly checking uh all of those so by by following that on github you can actually see uh when those features drop Uh, because obviously AWS has to release the functionality before they release the blog post announcing it. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't work for all the people that are are reading it and trying it. So especially around this time of year, you know, the couple of weeks leading up to reInvent, I like to to check that in the morning to see uh, what features and and services I can expect to see on the AWS blog uh, that day. Uh, And it it definitely gets um, busy, busy around this time of year.
0: So you'll find the links to those uh, couple of projects uh, that we just talked about in the show notes below. Um, I remember back in the day when um, I think who said that there's uh, there's, a, there's a couple of companies uh, in the, uh, based in Israel that was uh, focusing on security and they all provided some capabilities of uh, uh, monitoring your applications uh access and then use that to generate IAM permissions for you. But I think pretty much all of them has been bought by some other company. So I'm not sure what's yeah. happened with those uh, offerings uh, since they've yeah. been sort of taken out of the market.
1: That's it, that's it. That's why I'm hesitant to kind of give specific names now because it is a, a rapidly evolving landscape. Some of them are just launching, you know, with the full features to come soon, um, and yeah. A, a, Big number of them were definitely kind of swallowed up by some of the bigger names, uh, and yeah, it's it's hard to keep up sometimes. I think it just shows, you know, the the challenges that uh, developers and you know engineers are facing in this space. That you know, so many people have, uh, you know, decided to tackle this problem, and and yeah, mo- it feels like most of them are coming out of <laughs> of Israel as well. I guess they've got uh, a very security mindset there, and and a lot of uh, technical capability, and. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting space because, like I said, every every team has this problem, whether or not they they realize it. You know, and they they might not realize it. They might just be going along with um, admin access everywhere, just just uh, privileges. And look, I, I hope that works for them. Uh, it just means that if something goes wrong, it's it's going to go wrong in a big way. So uh, it's it's definitely an area that I think the vast majority of of developers companies out there can can do with a bit of improvement. Um, You know, that's one of the reasons why I decided to write the book.
0: Okay, so I guess uh, one last question. Um, What are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen companies or people make when it comes to IAM and managing permissions?
1: Yeah. So look, we, we've touched on a few here. You know, using using admin everywhere is is probably the first and and worst challenge. Uh, look, and the reality is people are not helped by a lot of the the examples out there. You know, a lot of developers are just trying to do their job, uh, and the AWS documentation is guilty of this as well, where it's like, hey, create an admin role, do the thing, um, you know. Otherwise, and you know, you can see why they would do that because otherwise they'd have to uh, a document longer than their how to guide on this new service. Uh, all just about configuring the appropriate permissions. So once you get beyond that, you know, I think the, um, the and, and it's kind of related to that, the, the biggest um, challenge or issue I see with customers, sorry, the, the, the biggest mistake I see customers doing is, or AWS customers doing is trying to lock things down too soon. So you know, unfortunately, people might hear that you know some of the things I've said on the podcast and think, oh, I've got to do least privilege straight away," uh, and it's it's counterintuitive, but it will actually make things worse. You know, so you need to give developers that room to to work and to to work out what those permissions are. You know, to your point around making changes to your deployment and getting to a stuck state because you've locked things down too much. Um, so for me, it's it's very much you know giving uh, more permissions or, you know, the, the right level permissions when you need them and then locking them down, you know, and this is you know, one of the reasons why it's important to have multiple development environments, you know, there's, there's a saying that everyone has a test environment, some people are just lucky enough that it's not also their production environment, um, you know, so you should be locking things down, but in production and you should not be locking things down in development because that's where you need to do that that innovation and that that change. And slowing that down becomes uh, a, a negative because, you know, to your example earlier, if it's all locked down and I can't do anything, then stuff it. I'll just use admin access. And, and they just kind of throw things out the window. Um, so that's definitely uh, one of the kind of counterintuitive things that I've seen over the years is that you can go too hard too soon when it comes to security. Um I think the other thing is, is probably just a lot of kind of uh AWS managed services are, are great and I definitely think you should use them for people um you know because it, it basically allows you to you know give someone permissions that are focused towards a service or a particular activity, you know, so it might be full access or it might be not full access, read-only as an example. Um, When you start applying those to machine users, you know, like CI, cd pipelines, look, it might be better than using admin access, uh, but it's it's not ideal just because there is a very big blast radius associated with them. Um, So that's one thing that I think uh, I'd like to see kind of more consistently used out there.
0: Um, so really interesting to hear your your, your point there about uh, locking things down too early is actually an empty pattern. It kind of reminds me of the whole thing that uh, Apple has been pushing for the last uh, I don't know couple of versions of iPhones. First, uh, use your uh, use your fingerprint to unlock your phone, and then just use your face. Which uh, a lot of people say is less secure, people can just you know take your take a thumb and open your phone or they can just stick it in your face and unlock your phone uh until you realize uh, well the reason why they do that is because something like forty percent of the iphone users don't don't set a password uh because that's too much of friction to users, so when security is hard, people just just don't do it so Providing an easier, less uh, frictionless uh, security mechanism that may be less secure would be a net gain that effect because it could encourage more people to do you know, uh, like a lower level of security versus uh, uh, all or nothing so I think uh, that actually is a really really good point point. and I think sometimes well I've seen customers do that already that uh, you know they try to be too um, too uh, too restrictive in terms of uh, security and and it just pushes developer to do even worse things
1: yeah definitely i mean that's that's exactly kind of what i've seen and you know it's as i've kind of you know built up this uh approach you know it's it it does kind of make sense because it gives them an area in which they can learn more about iam and then as they learn about it they feel more comfortable and they feel more comfortable doing it and actually doing that least privilege eventually it's just if you ask them to do it on day one and now they can't ship any code well that's that's going to be an issue
0: and i know as i said the last question but i actually want to follow up with another question based on what you said uh, another thing uh in terms of you know locking down environments production is where you want to lock things down uh, you don't want to give developers or anybody um, write permission into your production account but what do you do normally uh, when, say, there's an emergency, something is uh, broken, uh, you can't just, uh, you know, figure it out, uh, uh, or you can't rely on other automated processes to, you know, fix the problem? You have to go in there and just manually change some settings to get you through this uh, this problem. Um, what do you do in that case? How do you implement some kind of like a break glass process or procedure to enable people to acquire? write permission in the production account in the event of an emergency?
1: Yeah, good question. So look, I think that the the shortest part of the answer is is using those AWS managed services. So those AWS managed services are appropriate for human access because they give you certain levels of access. And um, you can see this actually in that Track IAM project that we talked about earlier, um, where it will give you access that's tailored towards the service and a particular activity. And it will apply to all resources. Um, you know That's the downside of managed services is that because they're pre-generated, they're already in your AWS account before you do anything, uh, they have a resource of star, which just means they, they work on any resource. So it doesn't really matter what it is. And this is actually a good thing for a human to have because if a human's logging into your environment, particularly production, chances are they're there because something's gone wrong. They don't know exactly what resource is broken. If they did, they would have already pushed a code change that would have automatically been deployed and they wouldn't be logging into the account. So giving them that level of access is actually a good thing. How you actually um, kind of vend that access, you know, whether it's the STS keys, Um, usually that's going to involve some kind of federation. And at that stage, you, you probably in a, in an enterprise scenario, you'd be relying on that, that identity provider to know that, Hey, this person under these circumstances is allowed to access this role. Um, so that one goes a little bit beyond uh, AWS. In if you're just doing it purely in AWS, you would have you know probably just a break glass role that's provisioned there, and maybe you're you're looking at your CloudTrail logs or, or you know via EventBridge and saying, hey, if anyone assumes this, let's ring a bell, let's make some noise, let's make sure that you know the whoever's in charge of this system knows that someone has assumed this role, um, yeah. because chances are there's a very legitimate reason to do so, but you know you you want to be sure about that. Uh, so that's um, an area where, yeah, definitely use the the managed policies uh, from AWS. Uh, if if you can lock them down, great. But you know you're going to be you know only using this access under very uh, limited and high stress situations. So uh, don't don't go overboard.
0: Thank you, Rowan. That's a great answer. Again, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to
1: me today. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks very much for having me. And uh, thanks thanks for buying the book as well, Jan. <laughs> yeah, it was always uh, it was it was very I was very happy to see that, that email come through. I was like ah, oh, now I've really got to write it. Jan, Jan's waiting for a copy.
0: <laughs> Thanks for uh, you know, pushing those other regular updates. I've been watching it in my inbox every time it comes through, and looking forward to it um, you know, finishing. And uh, and then I would um, I tell everyone about it, and uh, you know, hopefully get a few more people uh, to buy your book.
1: <laughs> Thanks.
0: All right, man. Take it easy and enjoy the reinvent
1: yeah you too have a good one
0: thank you for tuning into this episode of real world serverless i want to thank memento for sponsoring this episode get all the benefits of database caching and none of the operational headaches with memento serverless cache start free at go memento.co real world that's go m-o-m-e-n-t-o dot c-o slash real world So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.